Hey everybody, Mark here. So before we start the show today, I really want to take an opportunity to tell you what this show is and maybe what it isn't. So a little bit of clarification in the beginning of the show today. First off, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, my background, and why I'm doing this. So I'm a PhD student at the University of New Hampshire. I'm a microbial ecologist, so I'm interested in the interactions and processes that soil microorganisms mediate. And with that, I'm really interested in how soil microbes influence plant growth and influence the evolution of plants. And that's what I'm doing my dissertation on. So while this podcast is called The Climate Change Quotidien, I started it a couple years ago as a blog, and now it's seen a new face in the podcast form. It's not going to be about climate change always. While the first episode was because COP21 is extremely important, it's really going to be about things in science and things in scientific policy that are important for the general audience, the general consumers to be aware about. It's also going to be about things that I find fascinating. Today's going to be a great example of that. So I said that my background's in microbial ecology, but that sounds a little cryptic. And really, my training is in microbiology, genetics, and ecology. So today, we're going to really dive into genetics. We're going to do a little genetics 101, get you guys caught up on DNA, genes, translation, transcription, some of those fundamentals. And then we're going to apply it to one of the coolest emerging technologies for editing the genetic material, CRISPR. And I'm really excited to talk to you guys about this because it's going to be a component of my research and it's going to really revolutionize not only the way we grow our food, but a lot of other stuff that is related to health. So cancer treatment, uh, embryo editing, it's really a cool technology. So if this sounds cool to you guys, I would definitely suggest subscribing in iTunes if you haven't already. For those of you that have, you're the best. Thank you. If you've left a comment or have given me a five-star review, that's even better. This helps get the show around, and it's really what kind of inspires me to know that there are people out there listening. So stay tuned, and thanks a lot. Back on the Climate Change Quotidian, Mark Anthony here. And today, a genetics-heavy episode. I'm super excited for this, guys. Talking about where our food came from. And no, I don't mean the country of origin. I mean, literally, how did this plant come to exist as something that we eat? Before we can really dive into this, let's do some genetics 101. I'm going to take you back to ninth grade. Hopefully, there will be fewer braces, MTV music video sessions at 6 a.m., and less fear about where you're going to sit at lunch. Let's skip all that and pop right into the biology classroom. The basic things I want you to hear before we dive into the meat of today's subject include what DNA is, what RNA is, what a gene is, and how we go from a gene to something we can see physically. Alright, so let's start small and go big. Our DNA is made up of repeats of four different biomolecules called nucleotides, A, T, G, and C. That's it. There are literally four of them, taking different permutations to create new stretches of useful genes. So at its most basic definition, a gene is a sequence of nucleotides that codes for the production of a biomolecule. Sometimes this biomolecule is a protein, sometimes an RNA, or something else. DNA is also double-stranded, so if you put your left hand's pointer finger out, and then put your right hand's pointer finger underneath it, this is essentially the same thing as DNA. You have the same finger, but it's pointing in different directions. This double-stranding is part of what gives DNA its double helix structure. DNA is also stored in the nucleus, because it needs to be protected. Few things get to go into the nucleus. 
It's seriously guarded, and this is for a good reason. As a human, you wouldn't want to have most of the stuff in your body interacting with materials that provide a blueprint for your existence, right? This can mutate a gene and cause some abnormality, so biology takes guarding your DNA pretty seriously. So in order for DNA to send its blueprint out from the nucleus, a gene is transcribed into RNA. This RNA is a faithful copy of what was in the DNA, with a few exceptions. For today's conversation, the fact that RNA is single-stranded versus double-stranded might be good to keep in mind, but I'll remind you of that later. So when RNA is produced from DNA, this may be the end game for that RNA, but another fate is for that RNA to serve as a template for protein production. This is super interesting and refers to the process of translation. Cracking how we go from RNA to a protein is the genetic code, and it has a really fascinating history. In a nutshell, a bunch of elite guys, including James Watson and Francis Crick, created a club for all-star geneticists and only invited top dogs to collaborate on one task, crack the code of the RNA. The club was called RNA Tie Club. And while they arm wrestled with each other to figure this out, sending messages and notes cryptically through each other, one completely unknown young guy, Marshall Nirenberg, casually figured it out. He certainly was not part of the RNA Tie Club. So one day, very quietly in Moscow in 1961, Nuremberg gave a presentation. Only a single person from the RNA tie club was at this. Here, Nuremberg showed how three nucleotides codes for an amino acid in a gene, so that when you take a gene and you cut it up into different three nucleotide sections, you will have different amino acids, and these amino acid strings are what are behind proteins. So even if there are only four nucleotides, they can form 22 different amino acids because different sequences of A, T, C, and G can create different three-letter strings. Nuremberg showed that DNA is transcribed into RNA, that RNA is a blueprint for repeats of three nucleotides that synthesize amino acids. Or in other words, Nuremberg just casually cracked the genetic code. To put it lightly, Watson and Crick were pretty pissed. He was certainly not invited to the RNA tie club. So far, we know genes are stretches of useful DNA. DNA is stored in the nucleus, and it is transcribed to form RNA. This RNA is single-stranded and provides the blueprint for the genetic code. RNA gets translated, where stretches of three nucleotides code for the production of an amino acid. Strings of amino acids are what create proteins. So why is there so much variation? Well, in part, this is because of natural selection, something we've all probably heard but never really understood. While the biology is really good at maintaining our genes, storing it away in the nucleus, the sequence of nucleotides that code for a gene can be altered. A major way this happens is through mutation, where a nucleotide in a gene may be deleted from that gene, a new nucleotide may be added, or one nucleotide may be substituted for another nucleotide. Our cells are dividing all the time, and through this process, our DNA needs to replicate itself or repair itself, and these two processes are not entirely flawed. Our body's machinery can make mistakes while it makes copies of our DNA, and this is one example of what a mutation is. When a gene mutates, it can also take on a different form. Sometimes this is useful and makes an individual more fit than an individual with the normal form of that gene. If it gives an upper hand to the individual with the mutated copy of that gene, then that individual can be favored through natural selection. At a genetic level, it doesn't necessarily take many mutations for a gene to really change. When genes haven't changed very much, but have some mutations that make the product of that gene different, this gene has different alleles. A good example is cystic fibrosis, where we can see that a single gene can change very slightly, but that the consequences of this mutation are huge. 
Researchers know that 90% of cystic fibrosis patients bears mutation in the gene sequence of the CFTR gene. This gene includes 250,000 nucleotides. In an individual without cystic fibrosis, this gene encodes for the production of a protein that controls ion flow in epithelial cells in the lungs and pancreas. This ion flow is essential for maintaining water balance. In 90% of cystic fibrosis individuals, three nucleotides of the 250,000 nucleotide gene have been deleted. This deletion makes it impossible for chloride ions to enter epithelial cells in the lungs and the pancreas. When chloride ions can't get into these cells, the cells dry and mucus begins to build up. This mucus builds up and that causes bacteria to accumulate inside the cells because it becomes sticky. And this is what causes the negative effect of cystic fibrosis. So in this case, you can see that mutation in a single gene that is 250,000 nucleotides long is caused by the loss of three A, T, C, or Gs. From an evolutionary standpoint, non-cystic fibrosis patients have the lucky allele for the CFTR gene, while those with cystic fibrosis have the unlucky allele for the CFTR gene. Unfortunately, folks with cystic fibrosis are not favored by natural selection. So if we recap all of this, we see that DNA is stored in the nucleus, and as our cells die and grow, DNA needs to be copied and repaired. This can create mutations in genes. As we saw in the case of cystic fibrosis, this change to a gene's blueprint can be tiny, only involving the deletion of a few nucleotides from a gene. This is because when DNA is transcribed into RNA, that RNA molecule serves as a template for a protein. When RNA is used to synthesize a protein, three nucleotide stretches of that RNA code for an amino acid. You can now imagine how in cystic fibrosis patients, how the loss of three nucleotides could radically change how amino acids are synthesized and the order of those amino acids. So while this is great for understanding human health, I think this can also help us to get to the belly of plant domestication. While nature acts on genes through natural selection, humans have acted on plants through artificial selection. We choose the nice looking ones over the small fruitless ones, but did we actually realize what we were doing to the genetic material of plants? Did we realize we were changing the plant genome? years ago, humans laid aside their bow and arrows more, stopped relying on berries and mushrooms from the forest understory, and began to raise plants. These people did not write or read, but they began to breed different species of plants, taking wild species and transforming them into the crops we eat today. Most of the major crops we consume today were actually domesticated a thousand years before ancient Egypt, 4,000 years ago, including rice, wheat, and maize. Although humans didn't know it at the time, and Darwin didn't even understand this 160 years ago, we were altering the genes of plants. So for the same reason your dog has floppy ears, shorter teeth, and a smaller brain, domesticated plants also have bigger fruits, they grow larger, they also have bigger grains, they reproduce in entirely different ways from wild plants, they even taste less bitter. For both mammals and plants, this is because of domestication syndrome, or the genetic modification of species to take on new forms in order to meet the needs of human beings. Humans began collecting seeds from plants they grew the previous year, and they'd grow them again, 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 and again. 
They would also grow them in places that they changed or manipulated. Here's an example. In Australia, Aborigine would burn fields because when they did this, they noticed that the plants, they were grasses, they were the ones that grew first, and they were good to eat. They collected seeds from the plants they were eating, and it's not a big stretch to imagine that these seeds they collected were then planted in the burnt fields. While the seeds that they may have collected in the wild were subject to all types of difficulty, in the burnt fields, they had a lot of security. Humans could watch them and deter herbivores. They were seated all together in one space, didn't have to overcome the separation of wild species when they were looking for mates to reproduce with, or when their pollen would land on uh, compatible species. They were also grown in these burnt fields, where there was less competition for light and resources. Fundamentally, what this means is that the genes that help wild species be competitive in the wild would take on new purposes in these fields. They might be less useful. Plants with versions of these genes that were less useful in the domesticated fields would be weeded out, while those that had versions of the genes that were useful in the domesticated fields would be bred again. This continued process of selecting plants with specific traits is the modern practice of standard plant breeding. But what exactly is happening here at the genetic level? Let's take corn as an example. The origins of corn are in the central Balsas River Valley in Mexico. The original corn plant, or maize as we refer to it, was known as teosinte. I'm looking at a picture of teosinte right now, and it's incredibly branchy. What we think of as the ears of corn barely resemble maize, have a really tough outer shell, and just a couple kernels. If you showed me these two plants, I wouldn't even know they were related. Major differences between these two plants can also be understood by changes in two genes. These genes are known as TB1 and TGA1, and are known to influence the branching of teosinte and the architecture of the cob of teosinte. Most maize we consume today has many bursting kernels on each cob, while the kernels on teosinte are covered in such a tough casing that you'd break your teeth if you bit it. The difference in the cobs of these two plants comes down to a gene that mutated in a specific region of the TGA1 gene. Functioning of the TGA1 gene controls the formation of the hard casing around the kernels of maize's ancestor, teosinte. Not only does this gene control the casing around the kernels, but it's couched right above a bunch of other regulatory genes that influence the size and growth of the organs of teosinte. The difference between TGA1 and teosinte in maize as we know it today is a result of a single substitution in an amino acid. The TGA1 gene has a very specific organization. Every gene is comprised of repeats of four nucleotides, T, A, G, and C, in different orders. These nucleotides come in threes, and every three nucleotides corresponds to the production of an amino acid. This is the genetic code. Chains of amino acids create peptides, and chains of peptides create proteins. These proteins are what ultimately modulate activity. So if TGA1 has a single amino acid difference, this is due to the replacement of an A for a T or a C or a G, or a G for a C or a T or an A. You can see there are a couple different options here. But because of that replacement of, say, an A, we see a different amino acid. This changed the function of the TGA1 gene. The teosinte plants that had this mutated gene 
therefore had softer kernels that were larger, something humans could eat without breaking their teeth or needing to pop it over a fire. If you were a farmer 10,000 years ago, and you were growing Theosinte, and you happened to notice that one of these plants had a really, really soft coating over all of the kernels, and many more of these kernels, you'd have been pretty stoked. You'd have kept that plant, you would have used those seeds, and you would have grown it again. I tell you this story about maize because it's pretty well understood, and it's fascinating. TGA1 and TBA1 aren't the only genes to have mutated in Teosinte either, before forming what we now think of as corn. There's C1, R1, SH2, SU1, Y1, B1, many more. Genes that interact with each other as well, and genes that have a large influence on the part of the corn we eat. It's cob. So in a nutshell, we have created corn by exploiting genetic modifications of the genes in Teosinte. Study that was done by Consumer Reports, a majority of packaged goods that are na labeled natural are actually contain genetically modified ingredients, which makes it unclear, you know, as to whether they are natural or not, because they grow, but they've been modified in a laboratory or whatever. Apparently, the FDA will allow companies to put the word natural on a product label as long as it says JKLOL on the back of the product. <laughs> But uh, critics of genetically modified organisms or GMOs claim that they pose health risks. It's a complicated issue, though, because there isn't a lot of evidence to back that up. Still, some people are dead set against them. There's been legislation designed to limit GMOs. You see documentaries and angry Facebook posts about it. How many of you do not want GMOs in your body? Yes? Okay, a lot of people. All right. So, as I usually do, when people take a stance on a complicated issue, I wondered how many people who are against GMOs really know what they are. So we sent a crew to one of our local farmers markets to ask people why they avoid GMOs and more specifically, what the letters GMOs stand for. Enjoy. Do you try to avoid GMOs in your diet? I do. Yeah. Tell me why. Uh, just, there's just a vibration with GMOs. Uh, for me personally, just something that I don't uh, particularly want to put into my body. What does GMO stand for? Genetically modified. Genetically modified. The O? The O. <laughs> I don't know. Bishop Don Magic Wand, what is a GMO? <laughs> Well, I'm not really sure. You have to make me familiar with that. What is a GMO? Do you try to avoid GMOs in your diet? Yeah, absolutely. Why is that? Um, just the effects, I guess, on, on myself. What does GMO stand for? Oh, man. Putting me on, on the, under the grill. Let's see. I don't even remember. <laughs> uh... Do you try to avoid GMOs in your diet? Absolutely. Why? Because they're not good for you. What is a GMO? It's it's a genetically monitored. I don't know what is it. If you are eating whole foods, you want to eat what you're you're eating. <laughs> you know what I mean. You want to eat what you see, and so, and you're avoiding processed food. But when the whole food is somehow contaminated, that's, avoid, that's kind of making it a moot point. What does GMO stand for? Genetically manufactured. Oh. <laughs> what is a GMO? A general, a general modified ingredient 
right? What is a GMO? Uh, it's a gen it's a something modified. Do you try to avoid GMOs? <laughs> Sometimes. Not a whole lot, but you know, I, I try. What is a GMO? I don't know. <laughs> I swear. I was just going along with it. I don't know what GMO is. What is a GMO? I don't know. I know it's like some corn bad stuff, right? <laughs> I know it's bad, but to be completely honest with you, I have no idea. What is a GMO? I don't know, so I really don't care. <laughs> it doesn't affect me. I'm not sick. I'm fine. So. What is a GMO? It's a genetically modified organism. And what's GMO spelled backwards? O-N-G. <laughs> nice. From the Jimmy Kimmel Show there in 2014, interviewing people at a local farmer's market. I'm not going to tell you whether you should be concerned with consuming GMOs, or even go down that alley. We just need to understand more about our food, how and why it looks and tastes, where it grows, and how it grows the way it does. So I hope you can see through this short history of domestication and the story of corn that plant breeding is genetic modification. By consuming domesticated plants, you're eating species that were it not for humans would never exist. Not because of biotechnology or GMO, but because of human activity 10 millennia ago. So rather than talking about the ethics of GMO, I want to talk to you about some technologies that are emerging for producing GMOs. In particular, I want to talk to you guys about CRISPR-associated systems. I think the thing that's amazing about, about science and about biology for me is that there's always more to be discovered. And, and every time we feel like we've figured something out, it seems to open up several more questions. Scientists have appreciated for a long time that, that once we understood the DNA sequence in cells, if we had a tool that would allow easy manipulation of that sequence, that, that would be a very powerful kind of technology. CRISPR is a technology for changing the sequence of DNA in cells in a precise fashion to correct mutations that might otherwise cause disease. It's going to enable a lot of science to be done that was impossible to do in the past. So the way the CRISPR technology works is by the action of a protein called Cas9 that functions like a molecular scalpel for DNA. The CRISPR-Cas9 system has an amazing ability to recognize a particular DNA sequence in a cell that may be malfunctioning and then disable it by cutting the DNA. We call this gene editing, and we can use it to disable or repair a mutated part of the gene which may be causing disease. For Cas9 to find the malfunctioning DNA, we attach it to an RNA sequence that matches the DNA sequence we want to edit. Then we put this RNA-Cas9 combination into the cell. It finds the mutant DNA and uses a chemical reaction to cut the DNA strand right at the spot where it's malfunctioning. After that, we can sometimes insert the correct version of the gene for the cell to work properly again. It's a very, a very exciting technology that's going to do a lot of good in human society and for human health. It stretches from human therapeutics to agricultural applications to thinking about how do we make better biofuels. These would be incredible outcomes, I think, of using this kind of technology in the future.
That was a short production put together by Dr. Jennifer Dudna, a member of the Molecular and Cell Biology and Chemistry Department at UC Berkeley, talking about CRISPR-associated systems. Dr. Dudna is one of the first people to publish on CRISPR and to describe how it could be used for genome editing. So let's get into the molecular biology here. That gave you a nice, kind of vague idea of what's happening, but what are the origins of our understanding around CRISPR? So the information comes from a 2012 publication in Science by Jinnick and others, including Dr. Dudna. I'll post a link to this paper in the show notes. Basically, prokaryotes have distinct immune systems from eukaryotes, that's us. They have an adaptive immune system that allows them to fight off repeated attacks by specific viruses and plasmids. Now, just a quick refresher on viruses and plasmids, although I know you all remember. A virus is a small microbe that only replicates its DNA inside a host cell. A plasmid is a small piece of DNA that isn't part of the cell's chromosomal DNA. So, for the purposes of understanding the adaptive immunity of bacteria, viruses and plasmids can both introduce foreign DNA into a cell. In order to fight off a foreign DNA, prokaryotes have evolved clustered, randomly interspaced, short palindromic repeat-associated defense systems, CRISPR. Don't worry about those words, just know it stands for CRISPR, CAS. So how does this work? The defense system relies on small RNAs. The RNAs can recognize specific sequences of DNA and silence them. Basically, this occurs in three steps. First is to integrate short pieces of foreign DNA into the host chromosome. The pieces of foreign DNA are brought into a specific site known as the CRISPR locus. When this locus or gene is then expressed in the host, it codes for a precursor CRISPR RNA molecule. The precursor molecule is cut into shorter CRISPR RNA that can pair with a foreign sequence of DNA remaining in the cell. This CRISPR RNA is specific to the foreign DNA sequence because it contains a fragment of the DNA from that foreign DNA. The CRISPR RNA is therefore a guide for an endonuclease known as CAS. Endonuclease cut DNA at very specific sites, and in this case, CAS proteins cut the foreign DNA that is recognized by the guidance of the CRISPR RNA. This action is then able to silence the foreign DNA. This is why CRISPR-Cas is a system, rather than a single piece of molecular machinery. So those are the three basic steps. Introduce a piece of DNA, incorporate that DNA into the CRISPR locus on the organism's chromosome, and then express that modified gene to create a precursor CRISPR RNA. That precursor CRISPR RNA is then cut into smaller pieces where it can then guide an endonuclease known as CAS to cut and silence the foreign DNA sequence. So if you're running at work or pretty much doing anything but lying in bed listening to this podcast, then you may be a little lost because this is complicated as heck. So let's break this down and talk about how it can be used for genome editing. There are a few different CRISPR systems and the ones that have been used for plant breeding are type two CRISPR systems. In type two CRISPR cast systems, a Cas9 endonuclease is used to provide defense against foreign DNA. Cas9 finds foreign DNA because it forms a complex with a guide RNA. So let's jump back to step one to understand what guides the Cas9 protein. If you could follow the general description, this is the CRISPR RNA. So it starts with a foreign DNA. This foreign DNA invades a cell. That foreign DNA is then integrated into the CRISPR locus but only short fragments of DNA, referred to as the protospacer. The full CRISPR locus has a few different components. 
So CRISPR stands for Clustered Randomly Interspaced Palindromic Repeats. These repeats refer to multiple repeated positions in the CRISPR locus that break up areas of the integrated foreign DNA. So there's a repeat protospacer, repeat protospacer, repeat protospacer, and it just goes on. Once the protospacer is incorporated into the CRISPR locus, however, the CRISPR locus is expressed. The product of gene expression or transcription is referred to as a transcript. A transcript is a strand of RNA. The transcript here is a precursor CRISPR RNA that includes the protospacer of the foreign DNA separated by the repeat section of the CRISPR locus. This precursor CRISPR RNA needs to be processed though before it can actually complex with the Cas proteins and a tracker RNA comes into play here to initiate this. The tracker RNA is a transactivating CRISPR RNA, which is just the complementary sequence of the repeat section of the CRISPR locus that has an arm waving in the opposite direction of the complementary sequence. Tracker RNA doesn't contain the protospacer. The tracker RNA triggers processing of the precursor CRISPR RNA so it can be cut into smaller pieces. Since the precursor CRISPR RNA is single-stranded, the tracker RNA is the complement to this and forms a double strand. The part of the precursor CRISPR RNA that contains the protospacer remains single-stranded. So now, if we tried to zoom in onto the host, we'd see the CRISPR locus with various pieces of the tracker RNA above it forming double-stranded DNA. So, a ribonuclease degrades RNA into smaller pieces. And what we see here is that a double-stranded RNA-specific ribonuclease is then able to cut the precursor CRISPR RNA, but only where it's double-stranded. So this is just a special ribonuclease. It's special because it's going to cut the double-stranded RNA into smaller pieces. Since the randomly spaced regions are adjacent to each side of the protospacer, remember, there was repeat, protospacer, repeat, protospacer, the process precursor CRISPR RNA contains a single CRISPR repeat in the protospacer region. The function of this ribonuclease only occurs in the presence of a single Cas protein. This is referred to as Cas9. It's part of the name of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. When the precursor CRISPR RNA is cut, it is now the CRISPR RNA. It is the CRISPR RNA that acts as a guide because it contains the protospacer sequence. It complexes with Cas9 and guides Cas9 to the foreign DNA by matching the protospacer region with this region in the foreign DNA. Cas9 then cleaves the foreign DNA at the protospacer region. Cas9 has two nuclease, an HNH nuclease domain that cuts one strand of DNA and an RUC-like domain that cuts the other strand. This cleavage then silences the foreign DNA. While the CRISPR RNA contains a protospacer, or short region of the foreign DNA from a virus or plasmid, the system can actually be modified outside of an immune response. And this is where it gets super interesting. Rather than using the CRISPR RNAs as a guide, any single-stranded piece of DNA can be used to guide Cas9. You can also use multiple guides that complex with Cas9 to find multiple places to cut. Cas9 can be programmed and it is therefore the most versatile tool for genome engineering in different cell types and in different organisms. To date we've done it in bacteria, human cells, zebrafish, plants, and mice. 
For those of you who may prefer a solid punchline, Type 2 CRISPR-Cas9 systems can be used to silence any piece of DNA using guide RNA. A 2013 paper in Nature by Shanael first demonstrated the application of CRISPR-Cas9 systems to modify the genome of crop plants. Again, I'll link this in the show notes. The authors modified rice and wheat. In rice, they designed guide RNA that were about 20 to 100 nucleotides. They were designed to disrupt phytoene desaturase gene, OSPDS, which is responsible for carotenoid biosynthesis. These compounds provide pigments in plants. One you may know as beta-carotenoid. This is what gives carrots its color, and it's what helps human eyes out. The authors found that they could successfully use CRISPR-Cas9 system to disrupt this gene. Not only were the plants albino, but they examined the sequence of the OSPDS gene, and there were mutations here showing that the gene had been disrupted. This study was the first to show that CRISPR-Cas9 systems could be used to edit crop plant genomes. Since this study, CRISPR-Cas9 has been shown to be able to create targeted gene knockouts in Arabidopsis. When the Arabidopsis plants were bred, the gene knockout was also transferred onto the next generation. In a later study in Nature in 2014 by Wang Al, they explored the use of CRISPR-Cas9 to create wheat that was resistant to powdery mildew infection. Now a lot of GMO incorporate technologies that provide resistance in crop plants to pathogens. Powdery mildew is one of the most destructive plant pathogens worldwide and requires the use of toxic fungicides to manage it. Fungicides that can be overused, harmful to humans, and expensive for farmers. The authors targeted a locus that suppresses defense to powdery mildew. So when plants have this gene, they no longer have the ability to defend themselves against powdery mildew. So the authors thought that if they could suppress this, they'd find resistance in the wheat. This gene is known as TAMLO, and they were able to mutate the gene in a variety of different wheat lines, providing resistance to powdery mildew. CRISPR-Cas9 is essentially a targeted genome editing tool. We can thank bacteria for this finding because of their adaptive immune systems that use CRISPR-Cas systems. It's also a little bit scary to think that there are microbes out there that can adapt to almost anything. These microbes are able to detect foreign DNA from viruses and plasmids and incorporate a small piece of that into the DNA of their own genome at the CRISPR locus. This CRISPR locus is expressed, processed, and guides Cas9 to break the foreign DNA. 
We've already seen that the application of CRISPR-Cas9 in crop domestication is successful, altering vitamin levels in rice and wheat, pathogen defense in wheat, and these modifications are permanent and transferred on to the next generation of plants, so you don't have to do it again. In a world with an uncertain climate, growing immunity to pathogens, and an elevating population, we need to have a fleet of resources available to meet our global food demand. In a world where 88% of our corn is GMO, 94% of our cotton, and 93% of our soybeans, we need to really think about what it means to have GMO food and actually understand what GMO is before we have strong opinions. More than 90% of farmers growing GMO crops are resource-poor farmers in developing countries, as recently found by a report in the ISAAA. While I'm personally stoked about my local organic CSA share, I think everybody needs to consider what GMO is and what it is not. As I discussed earlier, plant domestication is genetic modification of wild species to select for traits that are useful for humans. We saw that domestication of teosinte, the original plant of corn, resulted in mutation of numerous genes that created bigger cobs that humans could eat. We then continued to grow those plants with mutated alleles until we form maize as we know it today. Plant domestication is genetic modification, from traditional plant breeding to targeted genome editing. Well, I've been taking things that I don't want to take Slamming other doors and feelers breaking me down The feeling never lasts, I need to satiate The feeling that I had before you took me right down I'll bring you when it starts to get a small high Short amount of time before the birds fly by The lighting in your room was always too low We said our goodbyes before we said hello Music on the show today includes The Alchemists, Breaking the Bank, Joseph's, There's a Garden, and Bringing Us Out as Lapsley's Tell Me the Truth. Feed the ego. When will these eyes let me?